podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to libertyshield.com right now, use the code EPL25, and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router, and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out a tad predictable hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable hosted by Kevin DeVries on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two for the podcast. Today is Thursday. It is the 29th of June. Hope you're all well. Today is questions day. So we're just going to do questions and gossip and little bits of news that are going around. And that'll be us for today. So let's get straight into the questions. First up, we'll go to Discord. And the first questions are from Chris Colby. First question. What player misconceptions would you love to eliminate? For example, Turum and Rice's sixes ramblings that are ongoing on Twitter. <sighs> yeah, I'd, I'd love player people to actually just look at what players do on a pitch and not look at, you know, profiles 
and not look at size as a primary factor of where sh- somebody should play. Like, yes, Declan Rice plays as a defensive midfielder for England. Declan Rice is not nearly as good for England as he has been in the past for West Ham. Now, this past season, obviously, he was very poor, but so was everyone around him for the most part. It wasn't just him. West Ham collectively were fairly crap. The league, in truth, was fairly crap for much of the season. The World Cup made everything weird. West Ham had had a long season the year before, so I'd forgive him some of that. But Declan Rice's best attributes lend themselves as a box-to-box midfielder. Look at what he does off the ball. Look at how he wins the ball. People talk about him as a great ball winner, and he is a very good ball winner, there's no question. But the way Declan Rice wins the ball is similar to how N'Golo Kante used to win the ball. By being a sort of all-over destroyer, not sitting in one place, he goes and hunts the ball. He doesn't wait for the game to come to him, he goes and hunts it. That's where Suchek came in. Because Suchek would sit in front of the defence and wait for the game to come for, to come to him, similar to what Nemanja Matic used to do next to N'Golo Kante. Rice's best attributes defensively are when he has freedom to roam. When you allow him to play, I suppose for NFL fans, a little bit like that roaming free safety, like an Ed Reed type, a ball hawk, someone that just goes and wins the ball. That's what Declan Rice is good at. Shadowing in front of a defence, that's not a strength of Declan Rice. That's where he will get caught out because his instincts draw him to the ball and he will always go to the ball and that will leave space behind. Go and look at some of the goals West Ham have conceded over the last couple of years and you'll see this consistently. Now, some of that is Suchek missing the rotation in behind him, but often it's just Rice charging at a position, Suchek not being anywhere close where he can get back in, and big spaces being left open. And if you're telling me that Rice is going to play as the six with Odegaard and Havertz either side of him, Arsenal are going to be not easy to play through, but they're going to be soft. They're going to have a soft centre because Rice won't be there quite a bit. He will abandon position to go and chase the ball. It's just ingrained in him. Now, Arteta could try and coach it out of him, but then you lose what makes him good off the ball. And then on the ball, his best attribute is his ball carrying. He's a good passer, not a great passer, but his best attribute is his ball carrying. You ask him to sit and hold, you take that away. If he, if he picks the ball up and goes charging forward, neither Odegaard nor Havertz is dropping in behind. Now, you might invert one fullback, be it the right back or Zinchenko from left back, still not leaving you very strong defensively. I, I think he's been badly misprofiled, and I, I, I have a feeling it's not going to work all that well. Certainly not in the short term. It's going to be a big adaption period for him. Turam is even worse because the the sample size of Kefren Turam playing as a defensive midfielder is minuscule and old. He hasn't played as a defensive midfielder in years. He played in a two, 
next to Schneidlin for a while. He played in the two next to different defensive midfielders. One of them was Mario Lamina. He's always been a box-to-box midfielder. And again, like with Rice, his best attributes are having that freedom on the ball as a ball carrier, off the ball as someone that can go and hunt the ball down. Now, he doesn't do it with the same aggression that Rice does. He's a little bit more conservative that way, a little bit cleverer as well in that when he realizes he's not going to get the ball, he will convert himself into a passing lane blocker, which Rice doesn't do. Rice will just continue to chase the ball. But what's happened here is people have looked at the size of both of these individuals and thought, oh, yeah, that's what they are. They're defensive midfielders. They've also looked at Rice and thought, well, he used to be a centre-back. So he'll just, you know, that's, that makes him a defensive midfielder. No, it doesn't. He just doesn't at all. Jamie Carragher was a striker as an under-15. He went on to play full-back and centre-back. He couldn't have played on the wing. He couldn't have played as an attacking midfielder just because he'd been a striker at 15, which is when, by the way, Declan Rice was last really a centre-back. So... I just, it's a small number of people who have big followings that spread this nonsense that these players are defensive midfielders. And it's largely because they don't watch football. What they do is they watch two-minute compilations and they look at raw data and size and they make decisions from there on what they think a player is. And then they'll write a 15-tweet thread and you'll get imbeciles in the replies going, great thread, bro. Like, no, not great thread at all, bro. It's utter tripe and gibberish based off not watching a player play. Declan Rice's best attributes are as a box-to-box midfielder. Kefren Turam's best attributes are as a box-to-box midfielder. Rice can play as a six. He's just not particularly good there. And if you play him with who England are, or Arsenal are going to play him with, it will be problematic. Rice's best games for England have always come with Calvin Phillips next to him. Always. Because Phillips prefers to do that sitting role. And he allows Rice more freedom. And even when Southgate, because he's Southgate tried to play Phillips as the box-to-box one, they'd just end up switching. And Phillips would sit in and hold and ping, ping the ball around. Um, what are the misconceptions? Right. Pep Guardiola being a genius is one I'd like to completely eliminate. He's a very good manager who's had every deck stacked in his favour and hasn't invented anything. He's just borrowed from the past. What Pep is great at is studying the past. Pep is a pure student of the game. He is a great historian of football. And that's part of what makes him special, is finding things from the past, tweaking them, and making them work in the modern game. That's what makes Pep special as a coach. But he hasn't invented anything. Like, that needs to be binned off. Um, I'd love the misconception that every team should play like a Pep Guardiola team to be binned off as well, because that 
really annoys me. Um, the misconception that team success equates to great players. Like, I saw yesterday, or might, might have been the day before, some crappy account with 100k followers, I should point out, saying that, you know, putting out the question, who was better, Ramos or Maldini? And I, I couldn't believe what I was looking at. You're comparing the greatest defender of all time to a fella who was never even the best defender in his own team, ever, at any level. Sergio Ramos was a very good right-back. He was not a particularly good centre-back as a defender. As a footballer, he was very, very good. He was good on the ball. He was a great leader. He might have been the last great leader. And he was an outstanding big game, big moment player. But defensively, he was all over the place. And for the same reasons that Manchester United fans routinely sell themselves on Aaron Wan-Bissaka as this great defender, because in their view, panic station defending, flinging yourself into big tackles for the cameras is great defending. People think Ramos was a great defender because he would make big mistakes and then use his athleticism and his pace to get back into position to make a big fancy tackle when if he'd just done his job properly... If he'd just been a good defender, he wouldn't have been out of position. He wouldn't have made the mistake. Pepe and Rafael Varane spent years carrying him. This idea that he's the greatest centre-back of all time is is laughable. He's not a top 40 centre-back of all time from a defensive point of view. He's certainly not the greatest Spanish defender of all time. Fernando Hierro, Manolo Sanchez, Carlos Puyol. They're three just since kind of the 90s onwards, who were significantly better than him. This idea that he belongs in conversations with Maldini. And then when you point out the issues, people say, well, look what he won. Look at all the European Cups he won. Well, firstly, Maldini won just as many. Secondly, Ramos was very fortunate to play with significantly better players than him who enabled him to have that success with both Spain and with at Real Madrid. And thirdly, team success does not equate to being a great player. It's the same thing with Liverpool's captain, Jordan Henderson. Oh, he's, he's won everything. He's the captain who won it all. Well, first of all, didn't win it all. The Europa League is real. Secondly, team success. Him being carried to success by better players does not make him a better player than what he actually is. Him being fortunate, fortunate enough to wear a piece of fabric on his arm does not make him a better player than what he is. The people who won those league titles, Liverpool, are the likes of Van Dijk and Alisson and Trent and Salah and Mane, Fabinho, Ginny Wijnaldum, Andy Robertson. Those are the most important players in that team. Henderson being a passenger on the bus doesn't mean he's capable of driving the bus. If Jordan Henderson at any point in his career had been your best player, you were finishing somewhere between 7th and 15th in the league. Simple as that. Team success does not equate a great player. Like no one would ever, no one would ever, ever mistake Gary Neville for a great player. 
Gary Neville was a good player who had a great career. Sergio Ramos was a very good player who had a great career, but he was not a great defender at any point. He was a very good right back. And when he played centre-back, he was a very good player, but not a very good centre-back. Again, he had that kind of rice type of thing of being drawn to the ball. And he was allowed to do that and get away with it. It's one of the reasons Real always played a pacey centre-back and a defensive right-back with him so that he could charge out of position and go and do silly things. And they would cover for him. What are the misconceptions? Um, that's a good question. What are the, is there any, any other any others that really bother me? The team success one has always pissed me off. No, I'll leave it at that. We'll leave it at that. Second, what players and or contracts would you consider to be untradeable? Stealing an NBA term for this question. This could be a situation where a team could just assume the rest of the contract without a fee or the selling club would have to attach additional value. Right, so uh, let's go team by team. Arsenal, uh, Nicolas Pepe is, we'll, we'll call it unsellable. You're not making any money if you sell him. If you sell him, whatever small fee you manage to get, you're having to give to him to make up the wages because nobody will match the wages that he's on. Aston Villa, I don't think they would have any, to be honest, because they've not been in the league long enough. At the moment, Diego Carlos is probably a negative equity type of player where you'd probably have to pay him to go because he's coming off a torn torn Achilles. But once he gets back and he's fit and he plays 10, 15 games, then he goes back to being a positive uh, attribute positive asset so I wouldn't Phil Coutinho is probably the one there actually they might be able to get a small fee for Coutinho maybe from Saudi Arabia or someone like that but I think they'd probably have to pay him to go away he might be willing to take a pay cut he might and if he is then maybe it saves Villa some money but Phil Coutinho would be the one there Um, Bournemouth don't have anyone Brentford don't have anyone. I don't think Brighton do either. I don't think Burnley do. Uh, Chelsea, there's a couple. Kepa is one. And Aubameyang is another. They will have to pay those players to go away if they decide to sell them. They're trying to get money for Aubameyang so that they can pay Aubameyang to go away. Unless he goes to Saudi, in which case he might get a ridiculous contract. And Chelsea wouldn't have to give up anything. But I don't think the Saudis are willing to pay a fee for him. Kepa is the other one. He's on about 180 grand a week. Still has multiple years left. Did have a better season last year. But considering how much they spent on him. And how much he earns. I don't think they'll find any value for him. If they tried to sell him. Um, Crystal Palace. Don't think there'll be anybody here. No. Nobody at Crystal Palace, I don't think. Um, Everton. Deli Alley? Probably Deli Alley. I don't know what Deli Alley wants from the remainder of his career, but, I mean, the guy is still only 27 years of age, just turned 27 in April. 
should be, you know, in his early peak now. And he's basically completely finished, isn't he? I mean, he had a good 1920 season. But he's had three disastrous years in a row. If I was managing a club in Europe, in Spain maybe, or Italy, a mid-level team, and I was looking to gamble on a player that could potentially give me a big return, I'd approach Everton to get Delhi on a free. Try and get him on a two- to three-year contract. One that's maybe performance-based, but Everton aren't getting any money and they probably have to pay him a little bit to go. Um... Fulham. Don't think there's going to be anybody here. No, wouldn't say there's anybody at Fulham. Uh, for Liverpool, it's Henderson. Obviously, two years left at ten million a year. Garbage for three years now. Not going to get a penny for him. We'll we'll have to pay him to leave if he leaves before that contract is up. Uh, don't think there'd be anybody at Luton. Newly promoted team would be very surprising. Uh, City. Calvin Phillips. He's probably the one where there's negative equity. Now, they'd still get a fee for him, but he's on very good wages, so part of that fee would have to go to him. Now, I still think he's a really good player. And again, I would take Calvin Phillips at my club. I don't hold what's gone on at City against him at all. But for City, given what they paid for him, I think that's that's a negative a negative equity asset. Uh, Manchester United, where to start? Um, David De Gea is probably one. Harry Maguire is definitely another. Um, Mason Greenwood, I suppose. You count him. They get money for Sancho without question. They get a lot less than they paid for him, and they'd have to make up the wages because no one else is going to give him the three hundred and fifty grand a week he's on at United. And maybe Donny Van de Beek in terms of you know they paid forty. What would they get from coming off a major knee injury? Would they get fifteen to twenty? Would a team be willing to match his wages? If not, how much do United have to pay? So that's. That's a tough one. I do think you'll find a buyer for him, but that's a pretty tough one to move and and get any real value on. I I don't think there's anyone at Newcastle. You could look at the likes of Lichelles and Matt Ritchie and that, but I mean, they could just release them and and just not be worried about them. But I suppose in that regard, they they would count there. Uh, Nottingham Forest, John Joe Shelby is definitely one. There's no value in, in a John Joe Shelby. So they'd be paying him to go away. Um, and up next we'll have Sheffield United. So we'll run through them. I'd be surprised. A uh, Ryan Brewster would be the one. Ryan Brewster, twenty-six million pound investment. You're not getting more than you know five, six million for him if you try and sell him now. And if you got that, you'd have to pay him to go. So the best thing they can do with him is loan him. Uh Spurs. Hugo Lloris, Hugo Lloris, unless he wants to leave and is willing to take a pay cut, which I assume is what will happen unless he goes to Saudi and he'll get more money, but they won't get a fee for him. No one will pay for him now. 
I'm not sure anyone would would pay for Eric Dyer outside of maybe a newly promoted team. But he's not on huge wages, so I, I wouldn't count him. But Hugo Lloris would be the one there. Um, West Ham, I don't think there's anybody. Skimaki you could look at, but I, I think they'd get good money for him. And he's not on massive wages, so I think that'd be fine. And Wolves, no, I wouldn't say there's anybody there. I wouldn't say there's anybody at Wolves who I'd count as a negative, a negative asset. Um, so yeah, that would be that would be my list going through the league. Um, AMK two eight eight nine. What are your thoughts on Ancelotti taking over the Brazil job and Xabi Alonso possibly replacing him at Real? This will be next summer. If not Alonso, who would be a fit for Real? My immediate reaction on this is it's too early for Alonso. But he's done really well with Bayer Leverkusen. If he does really well again this season, I think he's got the gravitas to walk in there and immediately command the room. I think he's got the tactical acumen to do a good job. And this is going to sound really weird, and I understand it's going to sound really weird, but I actually think managing like a club like Real Madrid is, in many ways, one of the easier jobs around. I think it's easier to manage a top club than a lesser club when you've got great players already there, when you've got huge sums of money to spend. I think that's easier than, say, taking over a Bournemouth and trying to build them or, you know, taking over a Coventry or a Luton or something and trying to win. I think it's an easier job. It does come with a lot more pressure and there's, there's a better chance you'll get sacked if you don't live up to certain expectations. So let's say, let's just say, for example, I get the Coventry job this season and the mandate is promotion. And let's say I lose the playoff final. Am I getting sacked? Unlikely. Unlikely. Now, let's say you, the listener, takes over Liverpool and the mandate is Champions League and you finish fifth. Are you getting sacked? It's more likely than me getting sacked because the pressure and expectation on you is higher than the pressure and expectation on me. But you have an easier job because you're walking into a club with a much better team and much more money to spend than I am at Coventry, where I'm going to have to build my team on a tiny budget, likely bringing in loan players and trying to patch something together on the fly. I'm also working with far less resources in terms of scouting, analytics. You've got huge departments. I've got one or two lads or ladies, in terms of keeping my players on the field, you've got multi-million pound sporting sci- sports science and medical departments, and I've got a fellow with a sponge, you know? So your job is easier, but your job has more pressure. I think Alonso, based on what we've seen through his career, is pretty immune to pressure. And we've seen a manager with no experience take over that job and win three European Cups in a row in Zinedine Zidane. Then leave and come back and win a league title. Two league titles, maybe. I think two league titles. So um 
I think it would be easier for Alonso th- to take the Real job than, for example, to take the Liverpool job. Because I think the Liverpool job is harder than the Real job. Because, again, Real, your mandate is win the league, win the European Cup. If you finish second, I don't think they're sacking you. If you lose the final of the European Cup, I don't think they're sacking you. But they might. Whereas if my mandate with Liverpool is to win the league or win the European Cup and I finish third and get knocked out in the semi-finals of the Champions League, they're not sacking me. They're definitely not sacking me. So I've got less pressure than you do. But I've got a worse team that needs more work than you do. And I've got less money than you do. So I think Alonso will be easier for him to take the Real job next summer than, say, the Liverpool job if, if Klopp left. And with a young team that they're trying to build there, Vinicius, Endrick, Chumani, Camavinga, Valverde, Bellingham, we assume Mbappe to come. And we assume at some point they'll get round to rebuilding that defence. A young manager is probably the right the right choice there. A guy who can shape them. A guy who they all saw play as, as they grew up. Who they'll all respect. That's one of the things Zidane had when he walked in at Real. All of those players grew up watching him. So they had that instant respect for him. Forgetting the fact he was a Real Madrid legend, which obviously Alonso's not a Real Madrid legend, but he did do very well there. But those players know him as a player and they'll respect him more for that. Rather than say if, I don't know, a great player from the 70s walked in as manager. Let's say Capello, great player in the 70s and 80s. If he walked in, I don't think they'd have the same respect for him. You know, even though he's a much better manager. Now he's retired, obviously, but you you get my point. Uh, moving on. Brian Javi, question for the pod. After listening to Scouted earlier this week and hearing Carl and you mentioned that Sancho should go, let's say he leaves and goes back to Germany or heads to Italy or Spain to revitalize himself and gain confidence. And in, let's say, two years' time, he's back to his best. Would you be willing to take a shot at him? I, I always thought he'd be perfect for us. It would depend on a couple of things. What shape am I going to play? If I'm playing a 4-3-3, then I would happily have him on the left of the front three as long as I had a lightning quick attacking monster at left back. Like Theo Hernandez, Milos Kerkes, Alfonso Davies... Destiny Adoiji, Nuno Mendes. If I had one of them at left back, yeah. Again, if I'm playing 3-4-3, I'd want that player at left wing back and him on the left to combine. Um, if I'm playing a diamond, you could play him. I, I think he'd work as a 10. I actually think Sancho's long-term future might be as a 10. I I think he's so instinctively creative his he's super intelligent his movement his touch his finesse i think it all lends itself better to being a 10 than a winger 
he doesn't have that burst as a winger, but if you put a fullback with burst with him, he can manipulate defences that way. And all Sancho needs is half a yard. And then you're dead. If he gets in front of you, you're not getting the ball back because he is going to hold you behind him. He knows how to use his body. He's very tricky. But I do think he might lend himself better as a 10. So if I'm playing 4 2 3 1 or I'm playing a diamond, then yeah, I would. I would take Sancho at that point. I'd take him now, frankly, if if I was going to do that. Um, who do you think should pull an Ian Rush this summer that left a club a year ago, but it hasn't worked? Or they, should, they should just go back to the club they left. Well, I would have said Kaladu Koulibaly would have been a prime example to do that. But obviously, he has uh, headed off for Saudi Arabia. And it actually would have made a whole lot of sense because it looks like Kim Min Jae is going to go to Bayern. So that one would have made a ton of sense to me. Uh, let's have a look. Raheem Sterling, I don't think Chelsea would take him back. Mark Kukurea, I know Brighton wouldn't take him back. Um, Koulibaly's definitely won. Who Tottenham signed last summer? Ivan Perisic, I think he'd be better off back at Inter Milan. Uh, Yves Basuma, I think he might have been better off staying where he is. If Caicedo leaves, I think that's a move that could make sense for everybody. Now, with that said, Ange, new manager, might want to use him and he could be great under Ange. Uh, Jed Spence, but not to Middlesbrough, to Nottingham Forest, will be another. Richarlison, uh, I think he'd run back to Everton, if given the chance. So he'd be another. Um, Let me think. I mean, most of the Southampton lads that got relegated would probably probably take a a do-over. I'm trying to think of... I mean, Aurelian Chouameni, he couldn't go back to Monaco, but I think if he had his choice again, I don't think he'd take the Real move. I really don't. Skamaka is an obvious one, but I don't know if Sassuolo could afford to buy him back. He's probably my number one choice, actually, because I just, uh, David Moyes has just not used him properly at all. Um... I'll go with him. Koulibaly would have been one. Richarlison would be another. Could Everton find a way to get the money together? Probably not, but it would help. Um, So that was Matt. This is Isaac Gilding. Seen this clip of Iniesta get posted a bunch. What do you make of it? Is it him being as good as we know he is, or is the defending particularly pathetic here? Let's have a go. 10 second clip. Beats one, beats two, beats three. Just place it back. Um, 
The defending is quite ragged. So if we take it from his first touch, that's Sesk who plays it to him. Uh, the first man he beats is actually an attacking midfielder. I'm almost certain this is against Spartak Moscow. And that, I think, is a Georgian attacking midfielder. Whose name escapes me. I know he looks like he's about six. Yano Anidze. Is that him? I'm almost certain that's who that is. Now, he couldn't tackle a well-cooked dinner, is the truth of it. Uh, I'm fairly certain that's him that he beats first time around. So that's just an attacking player, an attacking midfielder trying to make a tackle. Never good. Second one, uh, big lumbering player goes to ground. Ill-advised. Ill-advised to go to ground like that. Uh, Iniesta beats him quite comfortably, keeps the ball in. Big lumbering player comes back and slides in a second time uh, for reasons known only to himself. Then said attacking midfielder comes back in and gets nutmeg. So uh, the truth of it is, assuming that's who I think it is, and I think it is Spartak Moscow, um, he's beaten an attacking midfielder twice and a gobshite, and swearing was necessary there, twice. You lunge in once, you look like a fool. You lunge in twice, I'm immediately taking you off because what are you doing? Why are you lunging in in that area of the pitch? He's over on the touchline near the corner flag. You just want to hold him in that place. You don't want to try and give away a free kick because you're going to create more danger. That is just really poor defending, to be quite honest. Uh, Right, moving on then couple of questions here. So here's one from uh, Theo Saki. There's actually three of these. Are the benefits of the Mendes relationship starting to dwindle for Wolves? It does feel that way. It does feel that way. But the Mendes relationship was always only going to really benefit Mendes. That's how he operates. It benefits him and it benefits his players from a financial point of view. But look, at at the same time, it's it's too early to judge what will happen this summer. They've just gotten in a big fee for Ruben Neves. They might get another big fee for Nathan Collins. And if that's the case, they might be able to go and spend some money. So we'll see who comes in, and then we'll know a lot more. But at the moment, it doesn't look great. What overpay is worse, Tenali to Newcastle or Rice to Arsenal? Oh, Rice to Arsenal, easily. Um, I would have said Tonali was a 40, 45 million pound player. What have they paid? 55 to 60? Is it 70 million euros? So it's actually 61 million. So it's about a 20, 15 to 20 million pound overpay. Um, Arsenal have paid nearly twice what Declan Rice's worth. So definitely Declan Rice. There's, there's very little between. Tonali would actually have made more sense for Arsenal. In that holding role. But, you know, it is what it is. Um, what should West Ham do with the Rice money? So there's a couple of schools of thought here. One is you go out and you just go, you go two big players. So you go and replace him and Suchek, 
who can then revert into a squad role and him and Flynn Downs can be your backups. And you go and you spend that mo- that money on two big ready-made starters to just slot into midfield. Pick your two, whoever. Let's say they went for Matthias Nunes from Wolves and Joe Polinia because they've played together for sporting and it's a pairing we know works. And let's say they do that, right? That improves them. Polinia is much better defensively than either Rice or Suchek. Nunes replaces Rice's ball carrying so you don't lose anything on either side. And Polinia's as good a passer. Not as good a long passer, but as good a short passer. Uh, you could go the younger pair. You go something like Onana and Manu Kone or Romeo Lavia or, you know, whoever. And you can develop them and sell them on at a profit. The Nunes-Paulinha deal feels like that's your move and you're keeping those players for three to four years. You're not going to get the resale value. So you could do the resale value pair or the non-resale value pair. The non-resale value pair probably improves you more in the short term. The resale value pair, you're playing the longer game. Or you can break it up and you can try and add, you know, four or five pieces, but you probably take a step back in the immediate short term. So let's say they went and they bought, let's say they went and they bought Hayden Hackney from Middlesbrough for 15 million. And he comes in and let's say you buy another centre midfielder, maybe someone a little bit older, a little bit more ready-made to partner Hackney. And that might cost you, say, I don't know, 35 million. So there's, say, 50 gone. And then you buy in, you know, two to three more 15 to 20 million pound players, like an Alex Scott. Maybe you look abroad and you bring in... I don't know, again, Manu Kone, if he's going for around 30, 35, um, maybe you can find some value in, in Spain or in Germany or whatever. And you could do it that way. And none of them are as good as Rice, but your hope is that all of them develop and maybe four of them are successful and you can sell the four of them on in a couple of years. And maybe from selling the four of them, you might make 150 million. For me, I, I would probably look at going two big players, but you know, two players that I think can develop and have resale value. So Lavia, Lavia and Onana, it's it's a it's a partnership that has a basis in that they're both Belgian. They will play together for the national team. They know each other quite well. They've been involved in different squads together and different training sessions together with the national team. They've both got huge potential. Onana's a couple of years older, but Lavi has been in England longer. So they'll help each other out there, one from a slightly more maturity point of view, one from a, you know, already adapted to life in England point of view. And I I genuinely think you could turn both of them into hundred million pound players. I think they both have that level of talent. I, I think Lavi is genuinely special. So I I would probably do that if it was me. Um, right, let's see what the next one we've got here is. Right, next question is from Andy F, A Forum 3 on Twitter. Top five Premier League stadiums to attend a game, including amenities, history, atmosphere, pre- and post-match things to do around the grounds, 
and just overall fan experience. Right, so based on this current season, he's also asked for three championships stadiums. I can never do that as well. I'm going to be biased here and say Anfield is number one. I, I would always recommend going to a game at, ours, at Anfield. Number two, I would say St. James's Park. The atmosphere is incredible. It's quite unique how high up you sit as an away fan. And Newcastle's a fun place. Number three, Spurs. It's the best stadium in Europe. It's got the best of the best in terms of amenities. The atmosphere, by all accounts, is very good. It doesn't have much history because it's brand new. But there's a load of stuff to do around that area. So I would say Spurs 3. I'm biased, but Brighton, the Amex Stadium, I would go it. I would go Brighton. Now, it's there's not a whole lot to do. It's a, it's a little bit of a pain in the arse because it's outside of the city. But do a weekend in Brighton, and you'll have the time of your life. And the stadium's not hard to get to. So... Yeah, there. Or Selhurst Park. Selhurst Park for atmosphere, one of the best in England. The stadium has great history. It's old. It's a little bit decrepit, but it's great. I'm actually just going to... That's five. I'll give you six. I would say Villa Park as well. History, it's great. I love the architecture of the stadium. Visually, it's one of my favorite stadiums from the outside. Like, the big steps up into it. It's the red brick. It's just... It's what I picture when I picture a stadium. I think Villa Park's one of the best grounds in the country. So they're the ones I'd suggest. Villa Park, the Amex, or Amex, uh, Selhurst Park, Anfield, St. James's Park, and Tottenham. They're the ones I would suggest for. They're the ones I would suggest for the um, for the Premier League. In terms of the Championship, uh, this coming season, Loftus Road, QPR, great stadium, real tight. You're on top of the pitch. It's brilliant. And it's London. There's lots to do. Uh, So there, the Stadium of Light in Sunderland is a great place to watch a game of football. It's it's a great stadium. It's one of the best stadiums in the country. It's a shame they, they don't or they haven't maintained it as well as it deserved over the years, but they've done a better job in recent years. The Riverside in Middlesbrough is a bit of a pain in the arse because of where it is. So I'm not going to include it. Allen Road for history, for atmosphere. Allen Road is hard to beat. Vicarage Road is, is a really nice place to go and watch a game. Again, it's an older stadium. It's got that character and charm to it. It's got a decent atmosphere. The Hawthorns is a great atmosphere. To be fair, there's a lot of them in the championship. St. Andrews has a good atmosphere. I'll go Ashton Gate, largely because I love the city of Bristol. So I'll go Ashton Gate. 
I'll give you five. Ashton Gate, Ellen Road, Loftus Road, the Stadium of Light, and last but not least, I'll go Carrow Road because, again, aesthetically, it's a stadium I like. So, yeah, there you go. Um, moving on to the last question, I think, last questions of the day. These are from um, NFL underscore Seahawks 00. And there's a couple here. I've just lost them now, so that's great. Okay. Can you pick an inconsistent 11 of players who were great on their day but never had a great day consistently? Uh, David James would be my goalkeeper. My right back, I will go with Michael Richards. Had huge talent. Just didn't make the most of it. Didn't care enough. Left back, Christian Ziga. At his best, the best left back in the world. It was just a shame it was only about once every two months. Centre backs. Um... Mamadou Sacco. Sacco was the best centre-back in the league once every three games. The worst centre-back in the league once every five games. And just, you know, decent the rest of the time. So I'll go with him. Uh, the other centre-back I'll put next to him, I'll go with... Hmm. I'd be tempted to go with Victor Lindelof. Victor Lindelof, when he's on, is really, really good. It just doesn't happen regularly enough. I might just go with Victor Lindelof. I might come back to that one. Uh, in midfield, Paul Pogba. Undoubtedly the captain of this team. Um, probably going to play three in midfield here. So him. Uh, Naby Keita. I think for certain has to go in here. And... Hmm. I'll go with... I'll go with Ross Barkley. But his his day was like twice a year. And once then would come during the summer break. But I'll go with Ross Barkley. Uh, Neymar is going to be our number 10. He's just not consistent enough. He doesn't play at a high enough level. And then up front, I'll go with... Adrian Mutu and Boxic. Boxic on his day, incredible, unstoppable. More often than not, looked like an ostrich running around with his head cut off. So yeah, we'll go with him. If you had to pick an 11 from the, and a manager from the bottom half of the Premier League to win a football game, who would it be and why? Right, so this is from last year's Premier League, 2022-23 Premier League. Uh, this might be fairly heavy on um, Chelsea players. I'll be honest with that now. Right, let's see. So, managers. Um, God. Definitely not Frank. Definitely not Roy. Lopetegui is an option. Moyes is an option. Not Gary O'Neill. Not Daesh. 
I'll go with Lopetegui as manager. So we're going 4-4-2. In goal, we will take Alphonse Areola of West Ham United. At right back, it'll be Reese James. At left back, we're going to go Rayanate Nuri. At centre-back, we're going to take... Wes Fafana and Neof Agard. Central midfield, we're going to go Romeo Lavia uh, and Tyler Adams as a double pivot. But I'm not because I've got to have Enzo Fernandez in, don't I? So I'm going to go Enzo and Tyler Adams. Adams to do the ball winning, give it to Enzo and let Enzo run the show. So we'll go Enzo and Tyler Adams. Um, I might cap the Chelsea players at three. I think that's the fairest way to do this. Otherwise, it'll be more Chelsea players. Um, So in the wide midfield roles, I'm going to go Lucas Paqueta and Michael Elise with a nod of the cap to Ebri Chiesa. Paqueta one side, Elise the other. I'm happy with that. Up front, I'm going to go... I'm going to go... I've left Gibbs White out. I might play Gibbs White wide on one side, Elise wide on the other, and then play... Paqueta as a 10 behind my number nine, who I think is going to be. There isn't really a striker here that I want. Um, Do I just pick Brennan Johnson as one of the front? I'm just going to pick Brennan Johnson as one of the front two and leave it as Paquette and Elise. I'm just going to do that. I love Gibbs White, but I'll leave him out. My other striker is going to be Ian Acho's definitely one option. If he was fit all the time, I would take Calvert-Lewin. I don't want Iwani. I don't want Solanke. I don't want Antonio. And Sasek Kalisic was always injured. So yeah, I'll go Ian Acho. I'll go Ian Acho and Brennan Johnson up front. Now, I understand people will cry that I didn't put Declan Rice in, but as a pairing, as a pairing for a team that would work, Tyler Adams and Enzo Fernandez to me, makes more sense. In the same way that the best partner Enzo has had was Florentino Luis. Tyler Adams is a very similar player to Florentino Luis. So that's why I've picked him. Nothing against Declan Rice. So stop crying about it, Lubo. I hear you crying. Nothing to do with him. It's because Tyler Adams is the better partner for Enzo. Um, And I had Lavia on my mind because I was talking about him earlier for West Ham. Um, Right, that'll do that question. Next, oh, and manager, oh yeah, I went Lopetegui. Uh, How would you go about rebuilding Everton? Okay. Think of any role or position on the football pitch. What football or past or present do you consider the absolute standard? Right, 
I'm going to do this for all the positions. From my view, goalkeeper Gigi Buffon. I don't think there's ever been a better keeper. People will say now, not for me. Left back Paolo Maldini. Centre back Franco Baresi as a sweeping centre back. As a man marking centre back, I'm going to say Alessandro Costa Curta. As an all-round centre-back, in my opinion, the best I have seen is Alessandro Nesta. And the best... Do you know what? It's not. It's Virgil. It's Virgil. Virgil's the best centre-back I've ever seen. From... The minute he arrived at Liverpool up until he tore his ACL, that span is the best centre-back I've ever seen. Nesta might have been slightly better defensively than him, but Virgil was better as a ball player. So I'll say the best defensive centre-back is... All-round defensive centre-back is Nesta. Best all-round player at centre-back I've seen is Virgil. The best right-back I've ever seen is Lillian Turam. Now, I always pick Zanetti as my right-back when I pick my all-time eleven. But in terms of defensive work, which is primarily what I want, I'm, I'm going to go with Turam. Best right-wing-back I've ever seen would be Zanetti. The best left-back, left-wing-back I've ever seen is Roberto Carlos. Um... The best two-footed fullback I've ever seen is Dennis Irwin, who could play either side, just ahead of Philippe Lam. He was just he was just a better version of Philippe Lam. Uh, the best defensive midfielder I've ever seen is Fernando Redondo, but the best career as a defensive midfielder is Sergio Busquets. Redondo's knee injury and some mismanagement at Real for a couple of years kind of scuppered him a little bit. Um. Best central midfielder of all time is Lothar Mateus. The best attacking midfielder I've ever seen is Zinedine Zidane. The best second striker, and that's where I'd class Maradona as more a second striker than attacking midfielder, so I'm going to go with Maradona as a second striker. The best nine I've ever seen is the real Ronaldo. The best right winger I've ever seen is Lionel Messi. The best left winger I've ever seen. I would suggest it's probably Cristiano. Just trying to think who else would fit into that. Like Giggs was great, but he wasn't as good as Cristiano was at his best. Lentini had the accident before he could really reach the the level he was capable of. Actually, the best left winger I've ever seen is John Barnes. He's the best left winger I've ever seen. John Barnes, pre-Achilles tear, is the best left winger I've ever seen. So I'm going to go with John Barnes. Um, What am I missing here? A box-to-box midfielder. Um... I mean, Patrick Vieira, probably. Yeah, I'll go Patrick Vieira. The best captain I've ever seen is Roy Keane. The best leader I've ever seen is Roy Keane. But I I missed Sunes 
so I, I've kind of gone from you know late eighties on. Um, yeah, I'll go Roy Keane in that role. The best managers I've ever seen. I, I don't know how you'd separate them. I've got Capello, I've got Ferguson, and I've got Hitzfeld. They're my top three. But the most influential manager I've ever seen is Arrigo Saki. The best team I've ever seen is the Milan team in the late 80s. Just for, I would have them over Pep's Barca. That would be my one-two. Saki's Milan, Pep's Barca, and then everybody else after that. Best international team I've ever seen is is the Spanish team. Although my favourite international team is the the German team of 96, which I think if injuries hadn't happened and they'd had a bit more of an influx of talent after that group, they could have sustained something special. Um, I think that kind of covers everywhere, doesn't it? Have I missed any position? Best, best poacher in the box I've ever seen is Robbie Fowler. Um, the best creative passer I've ever seen is Mesut Ozil. The best passer of the ball I've ever seen is probably Steven Gerrard because he could literally play any pass he wanted with, you know, with power, with finesse. It didn't matter. Best crosser of the ball I've ever seen is Steven Gerrard just ahead of Beckham. Best free kick taker I've ever seen is Janino of Leon. And that's about it. That's about it. Um, how would you go about rebuilding Everton? You know what? I'll keep that for tomorrow. And I'll I'll do that. I have talked about what I do this summer, but I'll go about a proper rebuild tomorrow. Like if I was tearing it all down and building it all the way back up, what would I do? So I will do that tomorrow. Um, I'm going to take a break now. When we come back, we'll just have the gossip. And one big bit of breaking news. So I'll see you in a sec. Right, welcome back. So, I don't think I mentioned this yesterday, but uh, Spurs have completed this, the signing of James Madison from Leicester for forty million. That's down from the sixty that Leicester were asking for. I think it's pretty fair value. Uh, I would imagine that part of what that deal, what brought the price down, was Spurs agreeing to sell Harry Winks to Leicester for eleven million. And four million in add-ons, which I think is lower than Spurs were actually looking for for Winks. Winks is a good signing for Leicester. I'm actually surprised he's agreeing to go to a Championship club. He's definitely Premier League caliber. Uh, I'll be interested, as I said when I was doing Leicester, what happens with Barnes and Dewsbury Hall. But I definitely like the signing of Winks for them. I do like the signing of Madison for Spurs. Hello, Brighton fans, apparently. Um, and I'll be interested to see how Ange goes about using him. Uh, big breaking news today from David Ornstein. Aston Villa have agreed a fee with Villarreal for the signing of Pau Torres. I don't know what the price is going to be yet. I haven't seen that. But I do think that is a really, really good signing for Aston Villa. 
That's a huge floor raiser for their defence. Very, very impressed that Villa have been able to go out and get that type of deal done. Now the big question is, is it Torres and Diego Carlos or Torres and Ezri Conza? There's pros and cons with both. Conza's less error prone, but Conza and Torres are both more back foot defenders, reactive defenders. Carlos is that proactive ball winning defender. So in theory, that pair might work better, but Torres is more, or Carlos is more error prone. So we'll have to wait and see. Uh, what an upgrade on Tyron Mings. What a massive upgrade on Tyron Mings. Um, Arsenal have unveiled Kai Havertz, 65 million. I, I, I'm i struggling to wrap my head around the logic of paying 65 million for Kai Havertz and then trying to convert him into a midfielder, which he has never really been. I know he's played there in the past, but it's not his role. But we'll see how it works. Uh, Chelsea and Manchester United are set for another round of talks over Mason Mount. The deal will get done eventually. Uh, again, I just think it's a strange move for United and they're going to overpay for him. Bayern Munich are ready to try 80 million as their second offer for Harry Kane after their first bid was rejected. Declan Rice has been given permission to undergo a medical at Arsenal as they hold talks at West Ham over the structure of the 105 million deal. So the offer has been accepted for Declan Rice. It's now just about structure. West Ham apparently wanted paid back within two years and Arsenal want to pay it back over four years. Um, if it's over two years, that is massively going to scupper what Arsenal want to do over the next 12 months or so because they'll have to pay probably 40 million in this window for him. And then the rest is broken down over the next three windows at 20 million a pop. They were hoping to pay, you know, maybe 15 million now, another 10 or 15 in January and so on and so forth. Uh, West Ham boss is targeting. Amadou, Onana, Dennis Zakaria, and Harry Maguire. So Maguire will be a dreadful signing who doesn't get in the team. Zuma and Agard are better. Zakaria is what you do if you want Onana, but don't have any money. Sign Onana, then find a defensive midfielder. Manchester United are set to formally approach Brighton for Moises Caicedo. I don't believe they are. That's from Sky Sports, which is a trash source of news. I think that's trying to put pressure on Chelsea over the Mount deal. The Red Devils will hold talks with Chelsea this week to try and break the impasse over a deal for Mason Mount. Uh, Pau Torres. Gabriel Viega has emerged as a target for Manchester City, while Liverpool and Chelsea are also keeping tabs. Liverpool have met with the representatives of Dominic Zaboslai. This would be a deal that would be, make me very, very excited. Uh, Wolves have accepted a £7.5 million bid from Leicester for Connor Cody. Um, that's a bit of an odd move. If they're going to play a back five, a back four, that's a bit of an odd move. Burnley have submitted a bid for 18-year-old Belgian defender Noah Siddiqui from Anderlecht, a player that Vincent Company obviously knows very, very well. Chelsea are willing to let Callum Hudson-Odoi leave for £15 million and Nottingham Forest are interested. Hudson-Odoi in with Brennan Johnson and... And Morgan gives White Johnson on the right, Hudson Adai on the left. Gives White is the ten behind a Wanee. You play Mangala and Daniel behind them. I would have question 
questions to ask over both fullback spots because Nico Williams is better wing back as is Omar Richards. Yeah, I mean it's not a bad idea, but I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I'd prefer he went to Crystal Palace to be honest to replace Wilf. Um, Maurizio Pochettino is ready to receive offer- offers for Cesar Aspilicueta and could let him go on a free. That doesn't make sense. He's either ready to receive offers or he's willing to let him go on a free. Santos wonder kid Angelo uh, is on the verge of completing a 15 million euro switch to Chelsea. Okay. Benfica president Rui Costa says Manchester United are prepared to pay 69 million for Giancarlo Ramos. Um, I like Ramos. I do. I like Ramos. I think he's a good player. I don't think he's worth 69 million, but in a couple of years, perhaps he will be. But he's a good player. He's a good all-rounder. So it wouldn't be a bad signing, just a little bit of an overpay. And that's it. That's all I've got for today, folks. Thank you, as always. Thank you for all the questions. Hope they've all been answered. If I missed any, I do apologize. Let me know. I will do the Rebuilding Everton one tomorrow. I'll do Everton. I might do two. I might try and rebuild two clubs tomorrow. Two messes. Let me know in the Discord or on Twitter, who's the other, other than Everton, what other mess is there in the Premier League that I could have a look at? And uh, I'll see you tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.